0: Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is the Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds. Before I come on to what Annalise and I discussed, I have a very special announcement. As well as doing three live gigs at the Garrick Theatre in London's glittering West End on the 24th and 25th of May and the 2nd of June. If you're not aware of that, by the way, that was announced in the last episode, but I'm letting you know now because I know, well, you might not listen to every episode to remember every single detail. So that's the first bit. The political party is returning to the stage with three very special nights. The tickets for these, by the way, are flying out. So if you want them, get them now. Go to matfordcom slash live. I've put a ticket in the blurb in the show notes for you to get them. Three nights, the 24th of May, with Peter Mandelson and Saida Vasi. On the 25th of May, Keir Starmer and Andrea Leadsom. And on the 2nd of June, Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. Three fantastic bills live on stage at the Garrick Theatre, you can get your tickets for those now. As well as that, I'm very excited to announce my first ever streaming event, and it's very soon. It's on Thursday, the 22nd of April. You can get tickets for that. It's £10. There's a link in the blurb, and when you click on that link, you will discover that my very special guest is Tony Blair the most successful leader in the history of the Labour Party, a man who ran Britain for 10 years, will be my guest on Thursday the 26th of April. So don't miss out. Tickets are just a tenner. You can click on the link now to secure your place. That is very exciting indeed. All four of those events, of course, are thrilling. Um, so for the Tony Blair live stream, click on that link. And for the Knights at the Garrick, which feature Peter Mandelson, Saeed of Keir Starmer, Andrea ledsam Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh, Click on that link or just go to matford.com slash live and the whole thing is explained there. But oh my God, what a thrill! What fantastic guests! I'm so excited about them. I obviously love recording these ones as well, but to be able to do live events again, to be back on stage, to be do- I've never done a streaming event before. Um, so all this is very, very, <laughs> very, very exciting for me and I hope it is for you as well. So go to matford.com slash live for either the tickets to the streaming event with Tony Blair or the live events with that wonderful, so many stars, it's like looking at the Milky Way. Um, So I hope to see you there and I hope to see you at the streaming event with Tony Blair on Thursday, the 22nd of April. Today, my guest, as I said, is the shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds. And this is a brilliant discussion about where Labour needs to be at the next election, how Labour gets there, what the mood of the Labour Party is, how Labour should handle... The crisis and what decisions have they taken about when to intervene and what to say when and what their positioning should be. A whole load of things that are fascinating. But I had to start with, because you have to get these things out of the way at the start. I asked Annalise how to pronounce her name correctly.
1: Oh, goodness. Well, this is a bit of a saga, I'm afraid, because uh, my name is pronounced in a way that virtually nobody in the entire world pronounces it right so wherever you go in the world particularly in Germany or the Netherlands people say Annalise, so without the at the end but my parents said it was Anneliese and I think this might be partly because they they didn't exactly make my name up but they had to sorry you, you did ask Matt so you're getting wrong here <laughs> Yeah, this is good. And, but they had to please two Scottish grannies, very determined Scottish grannies, I should say. Uh, one called Anna, the other called Delcie, and apparently they both thought I would be called after them. So parents were in a bit of a flap. Oh. Um, and then there was an opera singer, apparently around, apparently who I, I haven't really heard all since. But anyway, called um, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but anyway, an- Annalisa Rottenberger, I think they said. Uh, so they they thought ah oh, we can use the first. The first names resolve the uh the, the issues with my lovely Scottish grannies but very uh yeah very forthright Scottish grannies so there you go that's why it's got such a, a strange pronunciation apparently so because sometimes
0: people if they get their names pronounced wrong or some you know I've met people who uh, say don't call me Al call me Alistair you know and people can be quite sensitive about their names but it, it sounds like you you've had to become quite relaxed about how it's pronounced
1: Oh, yes, goodness. I mean, I'm called far worse things than that. You know, when I was at school, um, you know, uh, I'll never forget when my friend's eyes lit up when they discovered there's a species of earthworm called Annelida. So, you know, hours of of fun as a result of that. But uh, yeah, I can can be called much worse.
0: (laughs) When you said you were going to get called worse, I didn't think it was going to (laughs) be puns on... um... Earthworms, I presumed you were going to talk about Twitter or or, or political <laughs> opponents. So I guess uh, earthworm insults are quite um, wholesome compared to the stuff that flies around these days.
1: Well, I, I, I suppose so. Uh, yes. Um, uh, and, and I guess uh, without stretching the analogy too far, I suppose, when, when you can actually see your friends ribbing you, it's rather different from uh, people anonymously on on social media but um, I mean I have to say uh, kind of I suppose being um, obviously there is a very serious point there that I think it, it would be very different if, if I was black if I had a disability um, you know if I was lesbian or, or bisexual I think you know then I, I would get a lot more abuse than I do get and I think it's, it's really awful for uh, people who, who are kind of picked on in, in that that prejudice way
0: this, I mean, we, we could have, we could do a whole series of episodes on how people behave online and why and, and, and the political implications of it. Um, and maybe we'll come on to, to some of that. But let's just start off with where we are. So you're the first ever female shadow chancellor. If Labour win the next election, you'll be the first ever female chancellor. It, I mean, it feels incredible in 2021 that we still have these female firsts in British politics. It's incredible that these officers have never been held by women before.
1: Yeah, it, it really is quite mind-bending, isn't it? I mean, I did a, a lecture at the beginning of the year um, and it's normally given by chancellors, shadow chancellors, heads of central bank, that kind of thing. And it'd been running for 42 years and I was 42 years old when I gave it. And I was the first woman, it's just extraordinary. And it it was because of the fact, you know, I don't think the organisers were um, in any way sexist, quite the opposite, actually. It was just the fact that there have been so few women in those roles until quite recently. But I do think things are changing. You know, we've got a female head of the uh, the IMF. We've got obviously um, head of the ECB as well. Um, You know, I do think that the the winds are blowing uh, in quite a different direction now.
0: And we've had two female prime ministers, both of them conservative. We've not had a female leader of the Labour Party yet.
1: No, we haven't. I would say that we've got brilliant feminists at the head of the uh, Labour Party, so particularly uh, uh, Keir. He's definitely, uh, definitely a feminist, um, and that, that's what counts for me.
0: And if he... I mean, it, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to discuss whether Keir Star was a feminist or not, but if he was a real feminist, would
1: he have stood for the leadership against a woman? Oh, definitely. Because I think what he's really determined to do is to, um, you know, improve our country, really meet its ambitions uh, for everybody. And you know, you can see all of the work that he's done. You know, obviously not just now, but also in his career previously around issues like violence against women and girls, where he's been, you know, really steadfast um, in calling for change and speaking up for the vulnerable. So I think that does show his his very strong commitment.
0: So Keir's been leader now for about a year. Um, You've been in his shadow cabinet for about a year. It's not been an easy year for anyone in the world. Um, But just let's think about this politically. In some ways, I sort of want to be careful about the language I use, but in some ways, there have been ways that Keir Starmer could demonstrate his leadership through this period, that he can present himself as a prime minister in waiting, someone who would take perhaps better uh decisions than than the the incumbent of of number 10 so in a way that's that i don't want to use the word positive because it's such a negative context but i think you know what i mean equally it's been very challenging because the government just dominates all the communications people are only thinking about covid and they want to hear from the people in charge how hard has it been for you to try and cut through in this last year
1: yeah i mean it it really has been a very different context and all the kinds of things that you know, Labour politicians would want to be doing, getting out there, speaking to people. I mean, we've only just started to be able to actually knock on people's doors and have those conversations. We can't give any speeches to packed halls. You know, it's very, very different. Um, I mean, we, we have, when it's been necessary for the sake of the COVID effort, we have been very clear when there's been a big difference between Labour's approach and the Conservatives. We haven't done that for party political reasons. We've done it because we wanted the response to be much more effective. And of course, very, very sadly, we've had awful figures in terms of the public health impacts, the number of deaths in the UK from coronavirus. We've had an awful economic impact as well, the worst economic uh, crisis of any major economy. So we have been clear when the government's got it wrong. Um, We haven't leapt in to criticise them when they've got it right. Uh, we have sought to be a constructive opposition because we all need to get our country out of this situation but you know when government has got it wrong we've been really clear about that Uh, but yeah not doing it for for party political reasons to get cut through in that sense but because we we want to get the response changed so it's more effective.
0: So hard to get that balance right between being responsible during a crisis which I think most politicians on most sides would want to be and that that political voice that is always there thinking, well, we've got to distinguish ourselves somehow. And if there's an opportunity somewhere, we have to take it. I mean, has it been a conscious decision to not be too visible? Or do you think perhaps, uh, are you frustrated that you haven't had more attention?
1: Um, I I would say that always the value that's got to, to drive our action has to be responsibility. You know it would be deeply irresponsible actually at any time but particularly now to you know seize on an issue just for the sake of opposition just because we think maybe we'd get a few column inches when that's not in the interests of the country so you know there have been really tough choices sometimes you know i remember when we were debating about whether labor should call for a circuit break back in the autumn we talked about it as a leadership team really intensively you know i was getting increasingly concerned about the situation with increasing infection rates and thinking this is going to start really biting economically when people start to lose even more confidence and we'd all come to the same conclusion uh, together that we needed to say something very clear you know back at that point some people were saying well you know hang on a minute this is quite a big difference in government policy but i think unfortunately if the Conservatives had adopted that position then we would have seen you know a much shorter lockdown afterwards it would have been more effective so I think it was the right decision and it was right for us to be very forthright on that issue and indeed on others where you know we've been listening to what the experts have been saying and being driven by them.
0: It must be so hard when the government's on telly all the time and kind of and fair enough right they're in charge. But do you ever think, oh, maybe we should do like a monthly Labour press conference just to kind of get it in people's heads? Just maybe the best thing to do is do it when you've got something to say. But have you considered that? Have you thought, well, actually, as shadow chancellor, I should do a kind of monthly economic press conference?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm keen to use every opportunity so that we can have that discussion, actually. I mean, not just around kind of broadcast, I suppose, but also to hear back from businesses, from working people, from trade unions, from different organizations across the country. Um, so I've done a lot of that in different parts of the country, in different regions, in Scotland and in Wales. Um, I consider that to be very, very important. Um, I, I don't always script every one of my interventions. Um, you know, I'm not going to make any contrast here with anybody else who might <laughs> uh, be involved in uh, financial decision making. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's really important that actually, you know, myself as Shadow Chancellor, that I can be open um, uh, to debate and discussion and to questioning from the press, uh, but from, from you know, people on the ground as well. That's that's really important, I think. And,
0: and as for the person you're up against, Rishi Sunak, at the start of all this, I was thinking particularly about the furlough scheme. That was such a big deal. Now, there are issues with furlough, but in general, I think most people thought, oh, my God, this is incredible. The government's going to pay our wages. I think it underlined how big the crisis really was, but it suggested that the government was prepared to take really bold, perhaps not traditionally conservative action when it came to things like the economy. I mean, I, I know where you stand on furlough, but at that point, did you think, oh, my God, there's a political risk here to Labour that where do we go? Where on what space do we operate?
1: I, I have to be honest and say that any party political impact genuinely really wasn't at at even the back of my mind actually it really was just thinking through what the situation was facing people you know I I remember at at that time having so many different constituents I mean when the the furlough scheme was first set up I was um, still a junior shadow minister um, and at that stage, being really un- inundated with people who you know, either been threatened with redundancy that had already been sacked or you know, people not sure about the future for their business. And really, the focus was just on well, what can we do to support people through this? And there genuinely was that cross-party um, you know, push for some kind of a furlough scheme, obviously working with the, the trade unions at that stage, as well as business too, to try and get this set up. I mean, you know, I I did have some concerns about the design of the furlough scheme from the beginning. You know, in other countries, there was always a training element, for example, within the scheme. We've not had that to any major degree in the UK. I think that was an enormous missed opportunity. We also didn't see kind of requirements for using the scheme into the future. You know, for example, making sure that firms benefiting from the scheme wouldn't be indulging in things like share buybacks again operated in other countries and not in the UK I think that would have made it more effective but yeah any kind of um I don't know partisan concerns were were, you know weren't any part of my thinking at that stage it was how can we get this set up and support people when they're in you know under so much strain.
0: Labour seem to understand that Rishi Sunak is popular or certainly relatively popular as far as politicians go because a lot of the sort of attack ads and the stuff I see on social media doesn't just go for Boris Johnson who in some ways, is an easy target. In other ways, it isn't. You seem to realise that actually, Rishi Sunak is a is a is a danger to the Labour Party. This guy is popular. He feels new. He feels fresh. People seem to like him. How do you find him as an opponent?
1: I mean, I, I always, I guess, really want to engage with the policies and not the person. Right. So you know, I'm not I'm not interested in uh, kind of personality politics. Um, And, you know, when the Chancellor has done the right thing, again, you know, I've supported him in doing the right thing. I do think, however, right now in particular, there are really big questions for the Chancellor to be answering. You know, big questions about why he, in my view, keeps taking a really short term approach. And that's creating a lot of uncertainty that's not necessary. I think it's one of many reasons why we've had such a, a bad economic crisis in the UK compared to other countries. But also of course now why he in my view has actually quite a loose grip on a lot of public spending we've just seen this green seal scandal uh, that's been breaking over the last couple of weeks and you know i'm really concerned that we don't seem to have that strong hand on the tiller of public finances that we really need to have uh, because we are talking about public money. You know, it's not the Chancellor's money or the Conservative Party's money. It is public money, taxpayers' money, and he should be in control of it.
0: The Greensill affair is something that you've been holding to him to account for, and his response to you contained some interesting information. I mean, what does your instinct tell you about what's really gone on there? I mean, it, 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 could there be a perfectly sensible, fair explanation for all this? <laughs>
1: Well, of course, the the way to find that out would be to have a completely independent inquiry led by Parliament. But I think regardless of that, there will be quite big questions really for the Conservatives to answer. Uh, I mean, the the whole model uh, used by Greensill and its engagement with the public sector would be, and sorry, it's a bit complicated, but it's based on something called invoice financing, which is quite common. In the private sector in circumstances where you know a supplier might have to wait a bit until they get paid um, uh, by the company that's buying their supplies but of course government has said that it will be paying its suppliers quickly you know it's committed itself to do that through the payment code so actually there's there's no room for this kind of approach within the public sector and just when this scandal started to break actually government was lining up a massive contract for Greensill to provide this so-called supply chain financing right across the public sector. So, you know, even if it turns out that, you know, some of the twos and fro's around the loan schemes could be explained, and we need to, to see that, I think, publicly, we really do need to understand why government wanted to open up all of our public services, it seems, to this method of financing that really doesn't seem to be delivering good value at all for the public purse, it seems to be much more about what Green Cell itself could make out of this approach.
0: And how do you kind of think about how you define yourself? It's so difficult for politicians. I, I think this obviously applies to Keir Starmer as well as you're a new team. You're trying to rebrand the Labour Party, you're trying to reset that relationship with the public. Keir Starmer is trying to move on from Jeremy Corbyn. You're trying to move on from John McDonnell, I guess. You're trying to contrast yourself with the government as well as what's happened previously with Labour. I mean, when you look at Rishi Sunak and you think... Do you ever think to yourself, I should have my own font. I should be putting posters out with my signature on it.
1: I, you know, I've got to be honest with you. I don't ever want to be the kind of person who is focused on, how to put this, I'm going to put this very carefully, um, you know, image and style over the substance of what actually I can deliver for people in, in reality. Um, you know, would I have decided, for example, to be spending six hundred thousand extra pounds on communications and PR right now? No, I would not have taken that decision, actually, given you know all the needs that we have right now in our economy and the number of people who are struggling and small businesses that are struggling to keep afloat. I wouldn't have taken that decision. Um, so, you know, I, I really do think that actually, We have those standards of public service that are focused on what politicians can achieve for the country, for the public interest. That's what we should be focused on.
0: The leader of the opposition, the shadow chancellor, is by far the most important shadow cabinet role. Do you think at all about how you want to define yourself in that role? I mean, obviously with chancellors, people like to be known as the iron chancellor. There was spreadsheet fill, you know, things that being seen as having a big brain is seen as an asset, being prudent is seen as an asset. Do you think... You know, at all, do you think, right, as Annalise or Annalisa Dodds or Annie Elsie Dodds? <laughs> I would like to be known as the ex, not the ex-Shadow Chancellor, as the kind of, you know, insert words Shadow Chancellor.
1: I mean, I think with any of those kinds of descriptions, they've, they've got to be authentic. Otherwise, um, you know, they're just slightly ridiculous and just there for the sake of image. Um, I mean, I, I am passionate about... Doing this job, and would be passionate about being chancellor because I really want to see our country achieving what I think it can economically. You know, I think we've seen actually during this crisis what we can do together. Uh, you know, I'm really privileged to represent Oxford, obviously part of Oxford. You know, I've seen for myself what you know, private sector, AstraZeneca working with the university and with the NHS actually managed to do with the vaccine. So in North Wales, what companies working with trade unions managed to do with the ventilator challenge right in front of my eyes. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And I think we can achieve so much more as a country. But you look at the projections, even for economic growth. I know that's not everything. Obviously, we, we need to see sustainable growth. We need to see it across every part of our country. But even just those raw figures for growth, and they're far below what was achieved under certainly the previous Labour government's. Um, uh, the last Labour government so we've got to be far more ambitious and you know I'm really ambitious for what we can achieve um, for our economy but I'm also really determined that we do see our public money being governed effectively that we stamp out waste and mismanagement and you know it does genuinely I know I've said this a few times but it absolutely makes my blood boil when I know how hard so many people have to budget they must budget really really carefully and then they see you know public money being thrown around as we've seen recently um you know the extent of cronyism and everything else you know it genuinely appalls me and it's something that you know I've been kind of active on for a very long time you know it kind of worked against tax avoidance and evasion and money laundering for a number of years um, and so certainly uh, you know that that's something that I would most definitely want to be known for. You know, it's something, as I say, that I've been uh, passionate about and not ever being put off. You know, so many times I've had people say to me, oh, you you just don't understand. Yes, it's very complicated, um, you know, approach to financing or whatever. It's very difficult to understand. Um, Well, far too often, that's just an attempt to fob off and to stop scrutiny uh, and to stop making sure that, you know, the right financial procedures are, are followed.
0: So the persistent Chancellor, that might be the, <laughs> that might be the moniker. I
1: mean, what, in terms of
0: Labour winning on the economy, which is crucial if, if Labour to ever win an election again, what's more important? Is it more important for Labour to be reassuring on the economy or is it more important for Labour to be radical on the economy?
1: Well, of course, we, we need to do both. We need to demonstrate that, above all, we will be effective custodians of public money, as I said, it's something that I, I'm really determined to do, that I'm really passionate about improving that control of public money. But then we need to indicate what we will do with those funds. But also, I would say, you know, this is about so much more than government spending. It's about making sure that the regulatory systems are right, it's about making sure that we have joint working between government and business and trade unions. And I think you know. Currently, we very often hear the, the Conservative government talking about the overall amount of money that they've spent. The big question isn't the overall amount; it's what they spent it on, whether they spent it effectively, whether they've backed that with effective coordination with the private sector, public sector, um, uh, trade unions, and so forth. Um, so I think, as I say, you've, you've got to do both. You've got to show that you really can transform people's life chances. Um, that we can make the country you know, the best place to grow up in and grow old in, uh, but also that we can do so using public money effectively.
0: There seems to be a sense that, that Labour is yet to reveal itself, that Keir Starmer's Labour is yet to reveal itself, that uh, he seems to be a competent and sensible and effective leader of the opposition and acts in the national interest and has a lot of positives that perhaps his predecessor didn't have. But as for the Labour Party's current political philosophy and where it stands, it seems to be a bit of an empty space. Is that deliberate? Um, and either way, um, where do you think Labour should be? Do you think Labour should be as left-wing as Jeremy Corbyn going into the next election?
1: Well, actually, I would say that, you know, with the ba- within the bounds of the national crisis that we've been through, you know, we, we've been very clear about where our priorities are. Um, you know, throughout the crisis, we've been calling for protection for those at the front line, protection for the most vulnerable protection for those who need our support when they've been, you know, becoming unemployed, when they've seen their businesses slipping through their fingers. I think that indicates very clearly what Labour's values are, that we're on the side of people up and down the country, and that's what's important to us. Of course, when it comes to individual policies, it wouldn't make sense for us to be setting out every single one of them right now. I mean, first of all, because, you know, we're so far away from a general election, but also because we're genuinely having that conversation with people right across the country about what they want to see from us as well. You know, We quite often uh, talk about how a lot of people are maybe looking at Labour again, people who might have turned away from us, they're looking at us again. Well, now we need to have that conversation and that discussion so that together we can be aiming for that better future for our country.
0: And do you, I know it's so hard when there hasn't been a party conference and you can't even go to branch meetings, but in the contact that you have with people, what's your sense of where the party is? Is the party still loyal to Jeremy Corbyn or is the party ready to go on a journey to the centre to try and win?
1: I mean, I think our whole country's been through such a difficult period and I mean, you're, you're right, that's impacting on how the Labour Party works. So There are still branch meetings and constituency Labour Party meetings, they're happening over Zoom. It's really funny how some of the, uh, how can I put this? Uh, you know people's idiosyncrasies I say this myself as somebody who I guess is quite idiosyncratic sometimes um, you can still see them through a zoom screen you know and how people relate to each other <laughs> uh, and you know where's the mute button all this kind of thing but uh, you no, know, it's, it's been um, great to attend a number of them actually across the country really find out from the grassroots about what people are are feeling and you know obviously we've got Labour councillors right up and down the country as well and, and pick up on what they're what they're doing um, I mean I think there's a, a real desire that we we learn from what's taken place during this crisis you know both around support for our public services making sure that they're never again so lacking in resilience but also that actually those real weaknesses in you know family finances up and down the country are recognized and dealt with you know the fact that a quarter of UK households didn't even have £100 in the bank when this crisis started. That's something that we must deal with for the future. So I think there, there's tremendous passion within the Labour Party right now amongst our membership. They really want to fight for that change. Um, there's a real strong commitment there. And actually, it's been quite interesting since we've been allowed to go campaigning again with the restrictions changing, obviously doing it in a COVID compliant way. Um, you know, I've seen so many people really determined to do that and get out there and have that conversation. Um, so, you know, certainly, the Labour Party is is changing. I think it's in a in a very positive way. Um, I guess just the last thing I would say. Sorry, this is a really long answer too. No, it's to good. Sure it's a question. Long answers um, are welcome. <laughs> but I, I think we've um, we've learned a lot from the community engagement that's gone on during this crisis. So, very often we've seen local labour parties, because they've had those brand structures, actually, a lot of the time, um, and because they've had members kind of, you know, right across the country, that they've helped to deliver a lot of the support for different communities. And I think that the the, the legacy of that is going to be very important into the future, because, of course, we won't just need that kind of community support right in the throes of this pandemic, you know, we, we could need it to help with other issues, you know, we're seeing those kind of networks being used to improve community spaces, for example, um, You know, help out vulnerable people more generally. Um, I think that's, that's really important for us as a party. I think we have learned a lot from that. Do you think the
0: party understands why it lost so badly last time?
1: Well, we've had, of course, that, that review, the Labour Together review. I know that a lot of different uh, constituency parties have talked a lot about this, you know, I've had a lot of discussions with members across the country about it. Um, Of course, very different views from people about why that had happened. And I I suppose, you know, what what I would underline is that, of course, unfortunately, this wasn't the first election that Labour had lost. We'd lost a number of elections, general elections. So the task facing us is enormous. We've got a mountain to climb. We're, We're getting through the foothills, no question about that. We are making improvements in a number of areas. I'm really encouraged by that. But you know, are we immediately going to be able to switch to where we need to be? No, it is going to be a longer process, no question about that.
0: It must be so hard for you to be on Zoom meetings because it's bad enough anyway. But you're you'll always be <laughs> like the most important person on the Zoom call. So it's bad enough when people start checking their phones or the door goes. But you must you have to be on your best behavior the whole time. The pressure must be enormous. <laughs>
1: It's, I, don't, I don't know I don't mind that too much I mean I used to uh, for, for a long time I, um, I, I worked in universities and uh, you know I used to lecture hundreds of students um, and so I'm quite used to to that kind of thing in fact the, the worst experience I ever had through that and I've never had it on a zoom call actually I'm very pleased to say was when uh, one student in the front row decided that his approach was going to be to copy all of my kind of hand movements and I've got I'm quite. Uh, I tend to move around quite a lot when I'm speaking, and you know, use my hands and all this kind of thing. Uh, and that was really unnerving, I must say. Um, uh, really, quite a, a funny manoeuvre there. Um, what did he uh, get? I hope you threw him out. No, I didn't <laughs> throw him out. Um, I just I just gave him the death stare that every teacher um, I think and lectured uh, it becomes more and more effective at, over the years and that, and that stopped it. But it <laughs> it was really quite a strange experience. So yeah, I've not had that over uh, over Zoom yet. I have had uh, one meeting which was Zoom bombed, which was kind of quite quite horrible experience actually. Uh, oh, not man. really for me, but um, uh, I think for other people who weren't expecting it uh, was was pretty horrendous yeah
0: and what was it zoom bombed with
1: well i think what had happened was that the link had been pasted into a public website of some form and i think there are bots that just kind of scrape for those urls and so we had um yeah, people using kind of, well, I don't think they were people, I think they were kind of computer generated, but, you know, using pretty offensive language and that oh, kind no. of thing. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't very nice, really.
0: No, it uh, hasn't happened to me yet. Yeah. It's happened to a few, I know, comedian friends of mine who've done gigs and they've been, you know, Zoom-bombed with adult material. Um, <laughs> it could kind of derail the gig. It must be very hard if you're a politician having to react to that.
1: Yeah, I think it's as soon as you work out that it's happening you know that's fine you just kind of close it down but I think for people who who couldn't understand you know because it's such a, a strange thing isn't it I mean it you know it feels like you are just talking to people well <laughs> I'm assuming that you are not <laughs> a robot um, but you know you know what I mean even though, yeah. though it's artificial you know it is still very human so when you get that artificial element coming in it's it's really quite a strange experience
0: yeah. Um, you mentioned your time there lecturing you lectured at King's and at Aston that must be quite a good grounding for for politics just the House of Commons or conference speeches it must give you a level of composure and training for those sorts of places is it a transferable skill
1: I think it is yeah I mean I, I always say very unfairly because my students were were brilliant but that I'm used to a you know a bit of a sea of uh, blank faces looking back at me but genuinely <laughs> they never were honestly they were they were fantastic my students uh, I do I do miss them I don't miss all the marking but I do I do miss them but uh, I think in a a way yes it did it did help Um, and you know obviously having to kind of produce a lot of material quite quickly um, uh, you know being being able to speak in public but obviously there's a lot of other um, kinds of experiences that can uh, you know help train people for those kinds of episodes as well Um, uh, so I don't think it's unique to having uh, you know having been a lecturer really
0: Do you ever stand there in the House of Commons when you've got your opponents in front and behind you uh, heckling and waving order papers and think, I just wish I was back at King's. Wish I was doing a lecture at King's in a nice air-conditioned lecture hall that only has to last for an hour and go to the staff canteen. It's much nicer than this place.
1: Uh, I have to say, although I enjoyed my time very much when I was a lecturer, I I don't ever feel like that, really, because... Um, I think that, you know, being a Member of Parliament, I believe, is the best job in the world uh, because you get to, I mean, A, you get to meet incredibly interesting people all of the time who've had an enormous variety of experiences, B, sometimes you do get to change circumstances for people and you get to improve their circumstances, you know, sometimes obviously in, in really radical ways, um, you know, I mean, I've kind of over the years um, and my staff, I should say, I mean, not not just me, my staff do a brilliant job, but, you know, if we've managed to, for example, um, get support sorted out for somebody uh, that can make such a radical difference to their life or, you know, get them to a place where they're, they're actually feeling secure and, and not, not threatened um, uh, uh, by crime or, or whatever it is, you know, um that's just such a privilege when you feel that you can affect that change you can help people and then of course when you're able to change legislation which doesn't happen so often from opposition but sometimes happens um you know you you really can improve people's lives and you know as I say I think that's to me it's the it's the best job in the world it it really is um so I wouldn't want to swap it for anything else most definitely not (laughs)
0: You didn't just work in academia, of course. You you studied for a long time, you got a PhD in government from the LSE. What was it specifically in? Oh, blimey,
1: that's the question <laughs> that every uh, every student um, who who writes a thesis tries to run away from, and it, you know you always get told off oh, you can't explain it in a couple of sentences. Anyway, uh, basically, I, I I worked on. Um, Uh, policies towards international students in Britain and in France, uh, and very interested in how they they changed a lot over time. Obviously, both Britain and France had empires previously and that used to drive their approach towards international students, then they went in really different directions. Um, uh, So yeah, that was what my my PhD was on. So I did some work in France for it, um, which was really, really interesting. Uh, including in the the education ministry and in, in France which was quite a, a privilege and very interesting um, but at the same time I worked as a, a research assistant um, also and did quite a lot of work on um, economic regulation utilities regulation things like that um, while I was doing that uh, that part-time work.
0: It's such a good grounding for the brief you've got and I think it's, it's such a great thing for any politician to have is a kind of Approvable a, a intellect, in a way, it's kind of like a, a great thing for you to have. You can go, "Well, I've got a PhD." Not that you would ever express it like that and say, oh, "I'm a doctor." You're not, but just for the public, they go, "All oh, right, well, Annalise must know what she's on about." No, well, <laughs> you're <listen> it at me.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't ever use the uh, the doctor very, very infrequently. I think because, I, you know, I'd be worried if people thought that I could cure their ailments and oh. they'd be very. <laughs> Very sadly disappointed. Um, I mean, I, I do think quite often I have young people contacting me and saying that they they want to work in politics in inverted commas in the future. And you know, I do always say to them. I think it it really helps if you've had experience of the outside world before. I mean, I, you know, obviously we've been talking about when I worked as an academic, but I, I've also kind of over the years done a variety of different jobs to keep myself afloat, you know, so I've worked in in catering, I've been a barmaid, I've been a waitress, Um, I've worked in a Weybridge, so it's very exciting when I got to visit a Weybridge factory uh, a few months ago, it was absolutely uh, uh, terrific to see it from the inside. Um, That was on a a large kind of farm complex um, and done various other odds and ends as well. And I, I do genuinely think that's important because where people have only ever worked in formal politics and in inverted commas, I think that make, can make it much harder to understand the, the impact of politics on people, um, you know, out there in the country, and I, th- I think that can be a major problem.
0: So, of the hospitality jobs you did, what was your favourite? Oh, <laughs>
1: uh, actually, it was it was being a barmaid um, uh, at a place called the Billington, which is a, a pub and nightclub out the back um in Oxford on the famous Cowley Road which uh is a great place normally to uh have a night out and it's a great it's a great place of course it, increasingly now that people would be able to at least eat outside and and that kind of thing now that's coming back um uh, and I really enjoyed that uh I mean I I kind of I, I do like my um my dance music and house music and there was a bit of that going on and um, uh, you know s- some great nights there um, uh, and I, d- I did other yeah when I, when I did waitressing that was um, at kind of national trust properties where so standards were very high of course around that's very uh, you know, different
0: no dance music there <laughs> <teas>. <laughs> uh,
1: and then also, also my first job was as a kitchen porter so washing dishes um so I've actually dreamt of washing dishes
0: which is quite a boring dream <laughs> you know it's so funny you say that because when I worked I worked at McDonald's for a bit and I used to dream because you know, it's basically automated work in human form I would then it was so drilled into me I would then dream specifically about the burgers I was making at night um but anyway so you work so you at Oxford and you worked in the Bullingdon did any members of the Bullingdon club come in when you worked there
1: Oh, I probably wouldn't have recognized them, actually. Course, yeah, yeah. I think they are slightly, uh, yeah, slightly different kind of spheres, I guess. Um, yeah, it, I don't think it had a lot of crossover. And it, it presumably, I think, is named after Billingdon Road, which is a, you know, a, a kind of um, nice residential uh, street in, in East Oxford. So I think that's where the name came from. I'm not, yeah, I'm not totally sure why that group of students call themselves uh you know gave themselves that moniker but I don't know they really have a lot to do with the and Road or the and Pub that's for sure.
0: I just wondered maybe I've been watching too much Netflix but it seems like a, a a cinematic moment to have someone working behind the bar who goes on to be shadow chancellor at the very least and perhaps chancellor and then you're serving a pint to Boris Johnson who goes on to become prime minister but maybe that maybe I've I've, maybe I've someone who didn't get to Oxford or Cambridge maybe I've misunderstood how kind of um what the culture is like I guess I mean you you were president of the Oxford Union so who were your contemporaries at the time who were the other politicians that we might have heard about now
1: yeah so I'm sorry about this it's all a bit involved but actually I wasn't president of the Oxford Union Society so that's the the kind of debating club where people will have seen the, the photographs probably and you know, where, where people have to dress up and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I was the um, leader of the student union, which is more similar to student unions at other universities. So, um, you know, it kind of uh, lays with the university on, on welfare issues and that kind of thing. So yeah, I did that for a year, which was, was very interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, and are there any other, are there any MPs now? in the commons that you remember from that time that were around?
1: Oh, so there aren't that many. Um, there are a few people who were, I think, at the university at the same time as me, but we didn't particularly have a lot of contact with each other. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's there's uh, Stephen Doughty, um, who, you know, l- lovely man, um, uh, one of the, the Cardiff MPs, obviously, and, and I knew him a bit, Um, uh, and kind of got on with him. Um, There probably might well be one or two other people that I'm going to be really, really embarrassed about, ashamed (laughs) about that. I've forgotten, although they'll think that I'm really horrible having done so. Um, So apologies in advance to them.
0: Uh, um, You know what it is? It's probably, I have a kind of, well, almost certainly fictionalised idea of what it's like, and I think, oh, if you go to Oxford or Cambridge, you're with Stephen Fry all the time, and there's Boris Johnson, and there's David Cameron, and then it's all this kind of like luminaries whether you think they're <laughs> any good or not but you just imagine it's sort of packed with everything you know you I imagine you would stand on the floor of House of Commons and think oh I studied with him in my second year oh I remember her from you know the Michael Mass term or whatever I think but I've I mean, probably u- got a, ultimately idea for it sorry
1: yeah but I mean, ultimately the fact that there is that routine to parliament I mean that that is a problem right I mean we should have so much more diversity in Parliament and we should see you know far more people who haven't been to university as well able to access Parliament we should see far more people who've come from right across the country sitting amongst us so um, you know it it, it is a major problem I think that we still see that situation where there's such a kind of you know rarefied entry a lot of the time into Parliament we've got to tear those walls down actually you know, one of the first reasons why I, I guess I started thinking about political issues. I mean, it was partly about the <laughs> minimum wage, funnily enough, connected to uh, being a KP, a kitchen porter, um, when I got paid £2 an hour. But, um, but it was also, it was about um, access to university and, you know, initially particularly about access to Oxford because, you know, I did see that, you know, that, that there wasn't that access that should have been there. You know, I had lots of friends when I was younger, perfectly bright enough um, to attend you know, they had, under a genuine meritocracy they would have had that ability and yet you know they weren't there and there are great resources there brilliant libraries and you know more teaching and that kind of thing and it, and it does still need to be opened up I know that efforts continue to be made but you know that's still very much unfinished business no question about it.
0: It sounds maybe I'm being unfair like you were more interested in house music anyway when you were there than politics.
1: Well, No, I, I mean I, I was involved in different campaigns, uh, absolutely, um, and uh, this will sound a bit um, uh, kind of spotty I suppose, I mean I, I genuinely w- was you know, really interested in um, uh, the work that I was doing, I'm not sure that my lectures would always said that but um, uh, you know I, I did really enjoy it, um, I really benefited from it, it was such a privilege um, and you know some of the people who I learned from um, back then, uh, I really think are incredible. It was one woman in particular, Sorry, without kind of going on about it, but um, a woman called uh, Kathy Wilkes, who was one of my uh, philosophy tutors. And actually um, when I kind of came from my interview for university and it was, you know, quite a strange experience, you know, I'd come all the way from Aberdeenshire, kind of rural Aberdeenshire, right down to Oxford and it was snowing and, you know, I was on my own, all this kind of thing. And she interviewed me, and uh, she was smoking. And she said, "Well, um, you know, I I smoke. I smoke. I can't remember how many. She said she smoked today. And uh, do you think I've got a lack of willpower?" So this is the first question that wow. I, I had from her. I said, "I thought she did." By the way, I'm not sure that I would agree with that now. <laughs> with that answer that I gave, knowing a lot of. <laughs> that could have gone the other way. Stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but she had been. She's actually an incredible woman. She'd been. Um, Uh, present at the siege of Dubrovnik um, and ended up being the the aide to the mayor there and that was because of her convictions about the need for, um, you know, pluralism and democracy um, and she'd been part of that kind of group of philosophers who went over and and kind of worked behind the the red curtain, Um, you know, people like that who just, um, you know, so completely committed to what they believed in and committed to learning uh, you know, absolutely incredible. It really was a, an enormous privilege.
0: So, what era? I mean, th- I didn't want to ask about what era house music because then I would basically be asking how old you are. But what era house music was it you were getting into?
1: Well, uh, don't worry, I'm not. I'm not snoofy about my age. You can easily work it out. Um, uh, but I maybe to give you a bit of a clue. So the first track that I remember hearing was by Mars, Pump Up the Volume, I don't know if do you remember yeah, that. Yeah,
0: great song, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that, I remember it coming on to Top of the Pop, so I'm showing sure my age here, um, that people remember, um, of my vintage as it were, that uh, you, you, you used to normally, you'd have the, the group actually coming to the group, the pop group, there we go, <laughs> um, on the stage, uh, and very, very occasionally you just have a video, you know, and this is yeah. like pretty unusual. Um, but of course, they just had a video because it was just a group of people who'd, you know, who'd mixed it, like with, with Ride on Time, uh, of course. Oh, it was another... Black Box. Yeah, and of course that, I mean, uh, they, I mean, they, they did get into trouble, didn't they? Because they'd ripped off the the original song and it was actually Right on Time. And they, you know, because it, English wasn't their first language, they didn't realise. I mean, all this kind <laughs> of stuff. With people virtually you know, making music in their, in their bedrooms a lot of the time. And of course I mean that's still, that still happens in our you know I'm so proud of actually our, our country's heritage and you know all the, the dance music that still goes on and obviously we've had a terrible awful period for all of the economy around that and everyone involved in it and yeah just really hope that we can we can kind of build forward to the future once we get out of this pandemic.
0: So did you get involved in the scene then? Were you going to the Hacienda? Were you going to illegal raves? Did the (laughs) the Criminal Justice Bill curtail your freedoms?
1: (laughs) No, 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 don't worry. I was was not involved in any of that kind of thing, I must say. Um, Yeah, no, I I think the effort of actually finding out where any of uh, them were taking place would probably have been a little bit too much for me uh, back in those days, definitely. (laughs) But
0: do you still listen to dance music?
1: Well, there is a there is a program on Radio One uh, on Saturday afternoons, uh, dance anthems. Which oh is kind man, of, it's a, it's a bit. I mean, it's kind of um, how can I put it? It's you know, it's designed to be feel good. I suppose there's nothing too kind of heavy there, um, but uh, yeah, that's that's always quite quite nice. Relaxing with the with the kids. I'm slowly getting my children to uh, to get into this. It's taking a while, but but they'll learn. I remember it, it used to be Dave
0: Pearce's dance anthems back in the day. I lo- I loved it all. I still listen to it. it was <laughs> The only reason I'm obsessed with it is I've started listening back to some of that stuff, like Ministry of Sound trance albums. And a lot of it's dated really well. I thought I'd listen to it and cringe at what I used to listen to. And I thought, actually, some of this stuff's really, really good still. So it's just quite yeah, nice to meet yeah. a kindred spirit who still <laughs> listens to it. <laughs>
1: I think also all that. Um, sorry, without I, I really am getting a bit spotty here, but that, that kind of house sound it is really kind of in vogue now with with new producers as well. So you're getting a lot of really really good stuff. I mean, you know, people like Disclosure who are amazing, and, and that kind of thing. You know, to me, it, so, it sounds quite similar. A lot of it to to what was around back then, um, and of course people like Annie Mac who are who are very much. Uh, still going and, you know, discovering new music, which is is really exciting.
0: But yeah. also, like I I found so much of it euphoric. A lot of it was string-based. It was kind of like versions of classical music for nightclubs, really. Some of it's really, really good. And for me, I think we're a slightly different generation, but it reminds me of the late 90s, early noughties, when <laughs> Labour were in power, and it felt like this music reflected a kind of hopeful era. I don't know if it, when you listen to it, it takes you back to the Blair era. <laughs>
1: It's an interesting question. I mean, there's sort of certain anthems, aren't there, you know, D-Ream and uh, oh, you know, yeah, that, that kind of thing. Um, and they're, they're always, at, although I, I have to say normally because I've been um, uh, working, so I haven't been able to stay up that late, but there is normally a, a Labour Students Disco, you see, at Labour Party Conference. Uh, that sounds cool. They, they, they're very good at organizing it, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm normally kind of tucked up in bed nowadays with you know a, a cup of uh, cocoa pretty much. I wonder by the time if this time could that have,
0: happened. This could have been a sliding doors moment for you because there was Judge Jules, wasn't there, who was called himself a judge on the basis that I think he'd studied law for a bit. I don't think he'd ever <laughs> actually presided over a, even a small claims court. but you could have been you're de- you could be Dr. Dodd's dance anthems. This could be a gig for you in the future.
1: No, no, I'm sorry. That that assumes that I've got some musical talent, which is is very, very far from the from the truth. I wish it wasn't, but uh, no, I, I just the the kind of artistry of a lot of people is just it's it's mind blowing. It really is, and yeah, as I said, I um I really hope that we we can somehow uh, you know make sure that all of that does come back. You know, once it's safe to to do so. I mean, we've we've already seen obviously a lot of different um different venues going under i mean there were issues before but it's obviously intensified during the pandemic so yeah
0: and are there any other like ravers in the house of commons <laughs> is, is anyone else that i'm into house music as well i'll tell you what you should do you should set up an all-party parliamentary group for house music and you'd get you'd get free tickets to Creamfields and all sorts of things
1: oh, but i wouldn't i wouldn't want to be uh to be using my influence for anything like that, yeah. however. No, no. Um, These would I be
0: important right. cultural trips.
1: <laughs> I think there are a couple of... Uh, certainly there are a lot of music enthusiasts and there is a, a parliament band. Richard uh, yeah?
0: MP4? Yeah. Ooh. Oh, is there a <laughs> new one? Is there a rival?
1: Oh, MP4, yeah, you're right. That's the name sort of it. Sorry, yeah yeah, 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 MP4,
0: <laughs> I yeah. Thought maybe a new one. I thought maybe a new one had sprung up. Really, I like... Yeah,
1: I do, there's a couple of, yeah, because there's some Labour people involved there who are, who are really, really good. In fact, um, it's interesting, you know, I found out one of them plays the, the pipes as well recently, which is, is very, very cool. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, so there are, there are quite a number of musically talented people. There's also the Parliament Choir, which I would be paid not to attend. Probably. <laughs> uh, They're that but, bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, not, not very good at singing, I'm afraid um but yeah quite quite a lot of that that kind of thing normally but you know obviously um with, with what's been going on recently all, all of that's had to had to to stop for the moment
0: well hopefully we will see you at a, a rave for <laughs> a party conference sometime soon or maybe a rave at a party conference maybe uh pasha wants to put on a uh, <laughs> a, a parliamentary reception um just before we go on elise um the 6th of May is election day in, well, all over the UK. Police and Crime Commissioners, Holyrood, the Senate in, in Cardiff, the Hartlepool by-election. Uh, what would be a good night for Labour on the 6th of May?
1: Well, we, we've got to obviously make sure that we win right across the country and we've got such an enormous number of elections then. It's completely unprecedented, actually, the number of different ballot papers that are going to be going out very, very different dynamics in different parts of the country. So, you know, it's difficult to just say in one sentence, uh, you know, what what would be a good result. I mean, I really want to make sure that we get really good Labour candidates, which we've got up and down the country elected, because I know the excellent job they can do. So I'm hoping, you know, under Anas' leadership in, in Scotland, that we'll be, uh, you know, doing well. I hope also that we'll see, obviously, that Labour government in Wales that I think has shown a very different, much more effective approach to the pandemic, uh, that they will also be um, doing well, obviously, in these elections. Our brilliant Metro mayors, of course, got the by-election in Hartlepool, excellent candidate with Dr Paul Williams. Um, so, yeah, a lot, a lot to be focused on um, uh, and really hoping that we'll, we'll see some good results for Labour then. But of course, in, in really difficult circumstances where we can't do the normal kind of campaigning, that we would and it's very difficult to know what the impact on turnout in particular is going to be this time around. I've just
0: had a thought on house music you should release an album called house music because obviously the house of commons gets called the house. Ah, There's a whole thing here, Got there's a whole there. there's a whole branding <laughs> you can just have that for free. You should do like a playlist and put it on Spotify. <laughs> Dr Dodd's house music. Like, oh my
1: goodness. You
0: know, <laughs> An introduction for other MPs or for politicos to to Dance and House. (laughs) Maybe not.
1: That is quite a thought. (laughs) Well,
0: well. We'll see if that happens or not. Annalise, thank you so much.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you. There you go, Annalise Dodds. Whether Dr Dodds' House Anthems is going to become a thing or not. At the very least... There should be a Spotify playlist made of it of Annalisa's favourite tracks. For those of you that don't work in politics, usually on a by-election, a soundtrack emerges, whatever party. People just end up listening to particular songs and then that becomes the anthem of that by-election. These things aren't chosen. They are handed to you by the radio or other people's CD collections. I'm sure there are Spotify playlists out there of various by-elections. If you have a Hartlepool by-election playlist, do let me know. We'll share it on the show. Um so we'll wait and see whether Annalise makes the crossover, the very rare crossover from Shadow Cabinet, potentially to government on the way and then to Ibiza Superclub Club DJ. Um, live entertainment that is happening before that, that is guaranteed, of course, are those three nights at the Garrick, the 24th and the 25th of May and the 2nd of June, where my guests respectively are Peter Mandelson, Saeed Avasi on the 24th, Uh, Keir Starmer and Andrea Ledson on the 25th and Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh on the 2nd and of course that streaming event the first ever political party streaming event on Thursday the 22nd of April it's in just a few days it's at 8pm and my guest is Tony Blair you cannot miss out on that I know so many people by the way and I miss doing these shows live so much, but when I'm at the other Palace Theatre, you chat to people afterwards, so many people say, oh, we missed the Tony Blair one. We can't... Be. I couldn't announce that it was Tony Blair at the time, ahead of the event for security reasons. But the beauty of streaming, of course, is that there is... You can watch it wherever you are. You don't have to worry about missing out on a ticket. So um, I'm delighted that he's doing it. It'll be a lot of fun, and you can get your ticket by clicking on the link in the show notes. I shall see you next week. ta